0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Christian Fellowship and we are very thankful that you're here worshiping with us today. As always, we want to welcome those folks that are here in the sanctuary. we got men and women out in the the overflow. I want to say happy birthday to Becky, who's out there celebrating her 68th birthday today. Uh, Yes, give her a hand for Becky. She's an awesome lady. Uh, And we have men and women tuning in online like we do every single week. You're joining us in the series that we've been in several months now, working through the gospel of Mark. As we've been journeying through the first eight chapters of Mark, we recognize that kind of the way in which Mark wrote this gospel was he's introducing us into who... Jesus is. And so each week, as we, as we do a different and additional uh, bit of text, we're, we're getting a new dimension, a new glimpse at, at the complexity and the beauty of who Jesus is. And today, we have a whole other dimension of Jesus that we get to behold as we get into chapter 5 of Mark's Gospel. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 21, and we're going to teach through the remainder of, of the fifth chapter today. And as we do that, what I'm going to do today, it's a rather large... Uh, Swath of text we're teaching through. And so like last week, I'm going to just as we read through the text, I want to just kind of teach through and read through the text and kind of highlight the things that we see happening in the passage. Uh, but there's something I want you to kind of cue your mind for to notice as we're journeying through these verses. I, I've spoken in previous weeks about how Mark is, is partial to creating these sandwich uh, structure in his, in his gospel. So there'll be a story, and then he'll break the story apart, and then he'll insert in the middle of one story another story, and they go together. It's a sandwich. There's bread, meat, bread. That happens in our passage today. We're going to see a man named Jairus who's got a daughter who is sick, and he goes to find Jesus, and as Jesus goes to help his daughter, we're going to see that suddenly this woman with an issue of blood for 12 years uh, uh, is encountering Christ in the crowded streets. We take a pause on the story of Jairus and his daughter, and we look at this woman with the issue of blood. And then when that's resolved, we go back to Jairus and his daughter, and the story is concluded. And and when you see this sort of structure, it's usually the center story that helps us understand the whole swath of Scripture. So we're going to look at that today as we study this passage, and we're going to see what it is that God has for us. We're going to see the compassionate heart of Jesus entering the ditch of others and we're going to see that our God is not just a God who sits with us in our afflictions, but he has the power to do something about it. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, as we open up this, this chapter in the Gospel of Mark, God, we ask that this wouldn't just be an exercise in learning interesting things. God, we ask that our brains wouldn't simply be tickled, but God, that you would your preached word, your living word would penetrate our hearts today. God, that you'd renew our minds. God, that, that it would elicit conviction and confession and repentance and worship and new life, and that, God, you would be glorified in this place today as we sit under the authority of your word, as we fix our eyes on Jesus as the gospel is proclaimed. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was in high school, I grew up in this little town in western Montana, and one of the things my friends and I were partial to doing was breaking into the municipal golf course at nighttime and going to the water features and stealing golf balls. It was before Jesus. And so, you can drive at 15 in Montana. My buddy Anthony got his driver's license. His mother or father had a, a Volkswagen Rabbit, one of those little compact cars, and we were out, man. It was, was going to be a party. It was, we were out. We were footloose and fancy free in western Montana. We were going to go break into the golf course, steal golf balls. We're on our way to the Whitetail Golf Course when Anthony mismanages a corner and our, our little Volkswagen Rabbit ends up down in this ditch, uh, hopelessly stuck, before cell phones. We're freaking out. We're going, to get, we're going to get caught. We're going to get found out. We weren't supposed to be there. We're in the ditch, all of us just freaking out as a bunch of 15, 16-year-olds. And we didn't know what we were going to do. And then all of a sudden, we see some headlights come. And, and pretty soon, this guy, we have no idea who this guy was, this big burly guy, comes down in the ditch. He's just a guy who must live in the area. And he asks us what our predicament is. He, he meets us in the ditch. We tell him our predicament. Evidently, this guy had experienced something similar when he was a youth. And so not only did he meet us in the ditch, This guy saw that we were stuck, and we can't get it unstuck. He goes over, and he bends down. He picks up the front end of that Volkswagen Rabbit, walks over, and puts it on a sturdy ground. And we're like, what? And we drive out, and we're like, hallelujah, we've been saved. (laughs) This guy met us in the ditch, and he had the power to do something about it. We're going to see that as we look at Jesus today. You know, have you ever had someone meet you in the ditch of your life? We might call that compassion. That word compassion literally means to suffer together, to share in the pain of another, to enter into the pain, to sit in the ashes with someone who is suffering. There's something so powerful and beautiful when someone just sits with us in our suffering. Maybe you've experienced this in your life, whether it comes from a parent or a sibling, maybe a friend or a teacher or a coach or a mentor or a pastor or a coworker or a neighbor, maybe a stranger. Maybe you've experienced this in in an acute, specific moment in time. Maybe you've experienced someone uh, showing you compassion over a season. Maybe there are people in your life who have modeled a compassionate heart through the entirety of your life. I love what Henry Nouwen says about compassion. I love this quote. Listen to this. Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable, and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. To enter the ditch of another is to show compassion. The compassion of Jesus blows my mind. The compassion of Jesus is so incredible. I could share a thousand examples in the Gospels of how Jesus enters into the pain of others, shares in their suffering, doesn't just look at them as a project, doesn't remain distant and unmoving and unfeeling about the pain of others. He enters into the pain of others. He sits with them in their grief. But he doesn't just stay there. Jesus enters the ditch with us. He notices us. He cares about us. He enters into our pain, and he has the power to do something about it. And today, as we look at our text, we're going to see this depiction of the compassionate power of Jesus. That's why I've called my my sermon, The Compassionate Power of Jesus. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that the compassionate power of Jesus meets us in the ditch and has the power to do something about it. Look with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 5, verse 21. This is the top slice of the bread, the first part of the sandwich. Let's read these first four verses. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. He was beside the sea. Then came out, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Let's pause there. Notice the desperation of this man. We see, we see this language that he fell at the feet of Jesus, that he, he implored Jesus earnestly. He was desperate. Jairus was desperate. What father wouldn't be when their child is barely clinging to life? And then also notice the response of Jesus to Jairus. It says that he simply went with him. Jesus did not ask clarifying questions. He didn't tell the guy to calm down, to step back, to take a breath. He didn't hesitate. He didn't need to. He was Jesus. He knew the situation. And for this father, in this moment, Jesus' Jesus's response was immediate. And so Jesus, together with Jairus, turned their face towards his home, and they together begin to, to travel to this little girl who was in desperate need. We see Jesus getting into the ditch of despair with Jairus. And as he does so, and as he turns his face to, to the home of Jairus, we see a glimmer of hope. And so here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down if you're a note taker. As we look upon the compassionate power of Jesus, we see a desperate dad experiencing a healing hope. We see a desperate dad experiencing a healing hope, or said another way, the compassionate power of Jesus meets a desperate dad in the ditch of desperation and gives him a healing hope. And again, this had to be a crazy day for Jesus. If we go back to the last couple of weeks as we've journeyed through this text, this, this, over the last few days, Jesus had taught in, in the boat under the hot sun. In, in, in exhaustion, he had gone across the, the Sea of Galilee, got caught in a, in a death-defying storm, was able to calm a storm with three words, peace be still. Jesus journeyed, journeyed to the Gerasenes on the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee where he met a man who was filled with a host of demons, a legion of demons. And Jesus cleansed the man Sent the demons into pigs that rushed down a hill and drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And then, as the herdsmen came and saw their dead pigs in the sea, saw the man in his right mind that had been a wild man, they were terrified and they begged Jesus to depart. And so, Jesus left the Geraceans as someone who was hated, and they didn't want him there, with the exception of the clean man. He travels across the Sea of Galilee, he gets out of the boat, and he has the exact opposite experience. Whereas just days earlier, hours earlier, moments earlier, on the other side of the sea, he was rejected. Here these people meet him at the shoreline, and there's a crowd, and they're pressing in from, from despised to adored in a matter of moments. Look at verses 21 and 22 again. great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea, barely got off the boat, is already being mobbed. Verse 22, he came to the, then came to him one of the rulers of the synagogue. Jairus by name. Sometimes I've heard that pronounced Jairus. I'm never quite sure what's the right pronunciation. And the text doesn't give us a ton of information about this guy. It says that he's a ruler of the synagogue. He was a lay official responsible for organizing and and arranging the weekend services in in the synagogue. He, He was responsible for making the Sabbath worship happen. He would have been a guy because of this position that was esteemed and respected by his peers and his contemporaries. He would have been maybe even part of the upper crust of the social ladder. And ultimately, the text doesn't tell us what his opinion was of Jesus. We can speculate. We, we know that the interactions that Jesus has had with the rest, religious authorities at this point hasn't been good. Uh, he's, he's warred against the, the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, we read back in, at the end of chapter 2, I think, that, that they were uh, conspiring with the Herodians for how they might destroy Jesus because he posed such a threat to their religious monopoly. But we don't know the heart of Jairus here. We know he was a part of the local synagogue. Presumably, we're back in the city of Capernaum here. What had Jesus done in the synagogue of Capernaum? Well, if you read through Mark's gospel up to this point, he, he, he preached with authority, astonishing all who heard him in that synagogue. Uh, he had uh, cast out a demon, uh, cleansed a man from an unclean spirit in that synagogue. He healed a man with a withered hand in that synagogue. Perhaps Jairus had seen the miraculous work of Jesus. And certainly the fame of Jesus was known in the region. So this dad, this desperate dad, On his last leg, hopeless, looking upon his daughter who's gasping for breath, fighting each breath, barely clinging to life. In that moment, he thought of Jesus and he rises up and he runs to the one person who he knows can do something about the suffering of his daughter, what dad wouldn't. Last Sunday, we talked about what it looks like to beg Jesus. And as we see him fall on his knees before Jesus, this is the picture of a man begging. Jesus, please don't let my daughter die. I chatted with some of you even today. There's some of us in this room today who know what it's like to plead with God on behalf of a child. I think all of us in this room know what it's like to plead with God on behalf of a person who we love and we care about. We know what it's like to to feel hopeless regarding the condition of a loved one, whether they are wayward or suffering or facing death or rebelling or precariously flirting with the wrong things. We know what it's like to feel hopeless. Many of us have been or are currently in that position. I think of parents pleading God on behalf of their kids, kids that are prodigal or wayward or unbelieving, kids that are making poor choices. I think of spouses praying for one another when you have a husband or a wife who's hurting or struggling or wandering. I think of siblings who pray for one another. I think of friends, the body of Christ. We all know someone in our life right now who we've been praying, we've been asking God to intervene on behalf of. We know what this is like to run to Jesus and say, oh Jesus, could you please do something here? Take heart. The compassionate power of Jesus meets us in the ditch and he has power to do something about it. Nextly, we look at this second scene, the, the middle part of the sandwich. As we look upon the compassionate power of Jesus, we see a wretched woman experiencing restorative faith. This next scene that we see inserted into the middle of the story with Jairus is we see a wretched woman experiencing restorative faith. Or said another way, the compassionate power of Jesus meets a wretched woman in the ditch of despair and gives her restorative faith. Look with me with me at verse 24. And, he, and Jesus went with Jairus, but then in the second part of verse 24, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Another translation of that passage says that, that a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And as Jairus is desperate for Jesus to get to his house and do something about his daughter, how frustrating, how horrifying must it have been to see crowds of people press in on Jesus and slow his progress to the house of Jairus. He must have just been thinking to himself, Jesus, Come on! Every second counts. But these pressing crowds are thwarting his mission. And then we pick up in verse 25 and verse 26. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Mark gives us a lot of details in a very quick succession about the hopeless condition of this woman. 12 years of uncontrolled bleeding. 12 years. She had spent every penny that she had so she's bankrupt and she's afflicted and the physicians had done everything and everything they did didn't help but only made things worse and so with each passing year it gets more and more hopeless so here she is growing weaker, death getting closer and because of her condition she also would have been considered ceremonially unclean because of Jewish law. So on top of the horror of 12 years of physical hell, on top of being financially ruined and in the face of an ever-worsening medical condition, she also has to deal with the social and religious stigma of being perpetually unclean, which would have led to her being continually shunned, leaving her in the ditch of despair, utterly alone. So here she is, slowly dying, hopelessly impoverished, shrouded in shame, and alone in the ditch. Wretched in every way. The word wretched means deeply afflicted, dejected, or distressed in body or mind. So this is her condition. Pick up in verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. I mean, she's desperate for a miracle. She's willing to do anything. The woman's belief was more of a superstition. Like many in that day, this woman believed that if she could even touch the garments or have the shadow of a godly person pass over her, she might receive healing. Notice the stark difference between the way Jairus and this woman approached Jesus. Jairus was a man who had some social clout. He was in the upper crust. He was a a have he went directly to the face of Jesus and had the privilege or the prestige of even being able to invite Jesus back to his home. This woman is on the opposite set of the the social spectrum. In shadows and in shame, she comes up behind Jesus hoping to just touch his garment or feel his shadow over her. And yet the love and compassion of Jesus is the same for the haves and for the have-nots. He shows no distinction. She's hoping to remain anonymous. She slyly positions herself among the throng as Jesus passes by, she stretches out her, her shaky, gaunt hand, frail, she grabs onto his cloak. Maybe, maybe she grabbed onto one of the four tassels that would have hung from the four corners of his garment. Verse 29 says that 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 immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately. What what in the world must that have felt like? Can you imagine? What it's like to experience the instantaneous, supernatural, miraculous power of Jesus surging through your body like a bolt of lightning, bringing divine healing and restoration in the the drop of a hat. And it wasn't just the hemorrhaging that stopped. She was restored. She she received strength and warmth and vitality. And she wasn't ambivalent about it. She, She was certain. She knew exactly what had happened. It was like a lightning bolt. She was healed in an instant, and she instantly knew it. She was certain she had been the recipient of a divine miracle and Jesus hadn't even spoken a word. So the same power that calmed the sea with just a few words, the same power that that cast a legion of demons out of an afflicted man with just a few words had now brought divine healing to this woman without saying a word. Jesus meets her in the ditch of despair and now she experiences healing, making her whole. Look at verses 30 and 31 and 32. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and he said, Who touched my garments? The disciple said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. What a chaotic scene. Iris is desperate. Jesus, 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 we have to go. My daughter's dying. The crowd is pressing around. I can hear them shouting and pressing in, and this woman is trying to hide and not be seen, and she reaches through. She touches the garment, and, and, and all of a sudden, Jesus just stops, and I don't know if the crowd stopped. I imagine the crowd just noticing a shift in the demeanor of Jesus, and I imagine them growing silent and still as the piercing eye of Jesus begins to scan those all around him as he's looking for this woman. He's not He's not unsure. He's Jesus. He knows. But this, this, this whole thing is for the benefit of this woman who is hoping to remain in anonymity. She's hoping with some superstitious faith to touch his garment and to get out of the way and never be seen or known, just superstitiously or magically be healed. But Jesus is not going to have that. He's looking for her. He wants to look her in the eyes. He wants her to know that he knows her, that he meets her in the ditch of her despair. He wants her to know that. And so this encounter on the streets of Capernaum is not random. It was ordained and orchestrated by God for the, for the betterment of this woman. Her faith was flawed. It was a superstitious faith. I read this week, one author writes, the, the woman's faith at its core was an ignorant faith. She had sought a cure that was essentially magic secured by touching the edge of the robe of Christ. She had no idea that Jesus would know anything about what she did. Her faith was uninformed presumptuous and superstitious, but it was real, and Christ honored her imperfect faith. Meanwhile, this woman is beginning to realize she can't hide the piercing gaze of Christ, cuts through the crowd, and in humility she comes before him, and I can only imagine what J. Iris is thinking at this moment, like, come on. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Knowing that she can't hide from the eyes of Jesus, this woman uh, timidly comes before Jesus. She's trembling. Her trembling is both in part to the, uh, the, the elation she feels at healing and the reverent fear she feels at the healer. And she tells him the whole truth, Mark tells us. The whole truth. She held nothing back. The hushed crowd is watching this scene unfold as this woman is before Jesus, and with utter vulnerability and transparency, she just gushes before Jesus, telling him the whole truth, everything. Whether or not she showed regard for the, for the gossiping ears of those present, we don't know, but she was knew she was in the presence of Jesus and she wanted to hold nothing back. Verse 34. He said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What a beautiful tenderness we see in Jesus. As he meets this woman in the ditch of despair, he calls her daughter. This is the only recorded time in scripture where Jesus refers to a woman as daughter. What an intimate title he gives to this woman, honoring the vulnerable transparency with which she she came before Jesus and just laid naked before him. Lord, I am bare before you. There's nothing, I'm hiding nothing. I'm gonna give it all to you. And he calls her daughter. And he says, your faith made you well. Not your superstition. Not my garment. Your faith is what made you well. As flawed and misinformed as this woman's faith may have been, Jesus saw it and he honored it. And by calling her out in the presence of many and by her honesty before Jesus, her faith was matured and developed. It was the grasp of her faith rather than the grasping of the garment that had secured the healing she sought. It was the grasp of her faith rather than the grasp of the garment that had secured the healing that she sought. You see, the compassionate power of Jesus met this wretched woman in the ditch of despair and it gave her a restored of faith. And I think there are probably many of us in this room who know what it's like to suffer through seasons of wretchedness. My guess is that there are some of you today in this room who are in the midst of a season of wretchedness, deeply afflicted, dejected, or distressed in body, soul, or mind. Many of us in this room know what it's like to labor under the weight of despair, to feel stuck in a ditch. Wretchedness comes in many forms. I'll name a few. Depression. Chronic pain. Habitual sin. Devastating loss. Spiritual doubt. Betrayal. Rejection. Deeply afflicted. Many of us in this room have been or are currently in a place of being deeply afflicted. Wretched. Take heart. The compassionate and powerful Jesus meets you in the ditch. And he has the power to do something about your wretchedness. And now we get to the bottom slice. The end of the story. The bottom of the sandwich. Here's the third thing I would encourage you to write down today. As we look upon the compassionate power of Jesus, we see a dead daughter experience resurrection life. As we look upon the compassionate power of Jesus, we see a dead daughter experience resurrection life. Or said another way, the compassionate power of Jesus meets a dead daughter in the ditch of death and gives her resurrection life. I think of Jairus again. Perhaps after experiencing and witnessing this miraculous encounter that this woman with the issue of blood had with Jesus on the streets of Capernaum, perhaps his faith was bolstered. Maybe even as he was freaking out about getting to his house as soon as possible, maybe as he watched this beautiful scene of faith and intimacy and healing take place, maybe his faith was bolstered. And maybe as he's sitting there watching this unfold, he's beginning to to calm down a little bit. But then verse 35 shatters all of that. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? This is the worst possible news. I wrote in my notes, this is the worst possible news for any parent. I think this is just the worst possible news, period. To receive word that your child has died is is very likely the most painful thing a human being can feel. And I know I've shared with you in the past stories of walking alongside families who have lost children. I thought I'd experienced pain in my life, and I've never lost a child, but I've, watched, I've witnessed loved ones and friends and men and women in my churches lose children. I've watched my sister bury two of her kids, and I just do not think there is a more horrific, undefinable, searing pain than the pain of losing a child. As the word came out, out of this messenger's mouth, Jay Iris's world stopped. His vision narrowed, his breathing became rapid, his knees became weak, his, his life ended, his world ended, an atomic bomb just blew up. I know there's some of you here who have received that news. And you can attest that it's an atomic bomb. But we read in verse 36, that's not the end of the story. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue. Do not fear. Only believe. I mean, how was Iris supposed to respond to this? On one hand, he had just witnessed a miracle with this woman on the streets. On the other hand, he had just heard the most devastating news a human being can hear. And Jesus tells him to, to not fear, but to only believe. And so on some level, Jairus is trying to just process this, this explosion of information and stimulus. And on some level, he must have believed, because we read in verse 37, that, that, that he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And so Jairus followed Jesus. He didn't collapse in a pile and say, my life is over. He followed him with some level of of faith. And can you imagine just what, what these... Just what the whole first part of Mark's gospel has been like for the disciples, but especially the last few days. Think about this from a human level. These are guys that were fishermen and tax collectors. These were just common dudes. They went to work, punched a time clock. They weren't formally educated. They hadn't seen the sorts of... And here in the matter of just months or days or weeks, even just in a matter of few days in our passage, think of what they'd gone through. I mean, they were on a boat begging God to save their life as the waves were crashing over and the boat was sinking. They, they had a near-death experience within a matter of days of this instance here. And then Jesus stands up, rubs the sleep out of his eyes, and rebukes the wind and the waves. They witnessed that. They saw a man naked and wretched and dirty, cutting at himself with stones, demonically possessed, living in tombs, roaming the hillsides of the Gerasenes. And they saw him cleansed. They saw demons pile out of this dude and into pigs. They saw him in his right mind. They saw Jesus do this. They saw Jesus walking through a crowd of thousands of people and somehow he felt power dissipate from his body and he turns around and has this intimate, beautiful moment with this woman on the streets and he heals her in a moment of tender intimacy, calls her daughter. And now they're walking with him into the home of a family who has just lost their child. There's a body in the room. What was it like for these men? One of the questions from our huddle group uh, curriculum, it reads this way. And and if you're in a huddle group, you'll you'll get this along with many other questions this week. But I think this is a, a question that causes us to consider this through the eyes of the disciples. The disciples are learning about the heart of Jesus through their experience in following Jesus. What do you think the disciples are learning? What are they learning about Jesus as they encounter Jairus, as they encounter the woman with the issue of blood, and now as they encounter this daughter in this dark room? What's it like for them? How are they being transformed as they follow an apprentice under Jesus Christ? They arrive at the home, and there's all these professional mourners outside, making a big show of the thing, weeping and wailing and making a commotion. This was a tradition. This was a common Jewish custom. It was required that there would be professional mourners at a death scene, But as Jesus arrives, he sees through the superficiality of this wailing. These aren't real mourners. They're not in the ditch with anybody. They're just making a show. Look at verse 39 and 40. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They go from weeping to laughing. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. These mourners are putting on a show, but there's no real compassion. They're not in the ditch with Jairus and his wife. I read this week that the fact that the wailing and tears could be exchanged so quickly for laughter indicates how conventional and artificial the mourning customs had become. Jesus casts out the scoffers, kicks him out of the house, allowing only his parents the parents of the girl and his three disciples to accompany him, and they entered the room where this young girl was laying. In other gospel accounts, Jesus says she's not dead, but she's only sleeping. Other gospel accounts make it clear that she's dead. Luke's account says that her spirit had left her. Jesus performed countless miracles up to this point, right? These guys had seen his miracles. He had shown his power and authority over the natural and the supernatural. We've been unpacking this for five and a half chapters. It's been incredible. But none of the miracles began with Jesus and others standing around the cold, dead body of a child. Certainly he can heal a withered withered hand. He can cure leprosy. He can cast out demons. Certainly he can cure a woman with an issue of blood. He can cleanse a man who's been afflicted. He can teach with authority. But this was death. Verse 41 and 42. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. I find it interesting that that Mark quotes the Aramaic here. The Aramaic is preserved. This was the language that Jesus would have spoke Talitha kumi is what Jesus says. These are the actual words that would have come out of Jesus on that day, not a Greek translation of it or a Greek iteration of it. I imagine the Apostle Peter some years later after this moment sitting down with John Mark, the author of our gospel, and as John Mark was compiling his gospel and as the Apostle Peter was one of his primary eyewitness sources as he was writing this gospel, I can imagine Peter just closing his eyes and and, and, and transporting himself back to this moment. Who wouldn't remember every detail of the day they saw Jesus overcome death in the life of a little girl? Who wouldn't remember every minute the scent of the room, everything? And I can just imagine Peter recounting the words of Jesus to Letha Kumi, he said to this little girl. It's etched in his mind. And we're meant to to see the room also, as readers. We're we're meant to see that quiet room on that day. The darkened room as they walk in, shuffling their feet across the floor, quiet, as Iris and his wife are holding back sobs, looking at their unmoving daughter, dead on a bed, The disciples, wide-eyed, terrified, unsure, and Jesus walking in, leading them all. We're meant to see as the compassionate whisper of Jesus breaks the silence of the room. Talitha kumi, he says, little girl, or more literally, little lamb, I say to you, arise. We see the hand of Jesus taking the cold, dead hand of this little girl in his as he speaks these words of life over her, and we're meant to see her eyes begin to flutter her chest take in that first breath after resurrection. And as she opened her eyes, the first thing she beheld was the face of Jesus looking at her. It's incredible. And one of the things I think is really beautiful about both the account of the woman with the issue of blood and with the girl is that according to Jewish law, a corpse... And a woman with blood were considered ceremonially unclean, and it was considered a a wrong thing to touch them. You weren't supposed to touch the ceremonial unclean, and yet in both instances, they have contact with Jesus. And yet the person who normally would touch an unclean person would be deemed unclean, and yet Jesus, in his divine beauty, he brings purity to these women when he touches them. They're both daughters. Beautiful. He makes her whole. The parents are overcome with amazement. I read this week that there was no doubt in their minds that they had stood in the presence of death. God had intervened so dramatically they were left speechless and with utter amazement. And we finish up our text for the day, verse 43. He strictly charged them to that no one should know this. This is the messianic secret that we see throughout Mark's gospel. And he told them to give her something to eat. It seems like that's a silly little bit of information that they added on, like, okay, so Jesus said, give her something to eat. But doesn't it speak to the detail, the attention to detail that Jesus pays the people to whom he shows compassion? She was hungry. He cared about her hunger. Give her something to eat. The compassionate power of Jesus met a dead daughter in the ditch of death, and gave her resurrection life. And so we see this scene today. As we look upon this section of Scripture, as we look upon the compassionate power of Jesus, we see a desperate dad experiencing a healing hope. We, we see a, a wretched woman experiencing restorative faith. We see a dead daughter experiencing resurrection life. We see Jesus get out of the car, get down in the ditch with those who are in the ditch, but he has the power to do something about it. The same compassionate power of Jesus that we see at work in our text is the same compassionate power that we see at work in our midst today. It was true for them then, and it's true for us today. Or as one author notes, what is the Christ like who gives this life? What is the Christ like who who breathes life back into this little girl? Well, he's all-powerful. He made the raging sea instantly lay flat with a word, He cast out a legion of spirits with another word. He he healed the outcast woman without a word. He tenderly raised the little girl with the word. He's understanding. He's loving. He's gentle. He's compassionate. He's inviting. And he speaks a word over your life today. The compassionate power of Jesus meets us in the ditch. So as we look at this text, how are we to think about it in terms of application? It's an incredible story, captivating to see the heart of Jesus, the compassionate heart of Jesus. But how are we to think of this today? Well, I think we can think about it in four ways, one of four ways. I would encourage you to identify where you might be today. Like Iris, maybe you are someone today who is desperate for the well-being of another. Who is the person that God has burdened your heart with today? Who are the people that God has burdened your heart with today? Do you know how encouraging it is for me to hear how many of you have been praying for my mom? I texted my mom during the service as music was going on. I said, Mom, for those of you who don't know, my mom's fighting cancer right now. She, she had a lung removed last week. But for those of, like, I said, Mom, there are saints all the way across the country that are holding you up before the throne of God. Like Iris, you are bringing my mother. You're desperate for her well-being. I just think it's incredible. Who, who is it that God has put in your heart and in your life that you can advocate before or advocate for today? Secondly, like the woman, maybe today you are, you are in the ditch of despair. There's desperation. There's wretchedness in your life. I don't know what that may be, why you have found yourself in that condition. That may be where you are today, and maybe for you, God wants to remind you that you are not alone. He is with you today, and he has the power to do something about it, if you'll just trust him. Maybe today there's some of you that are like Jesus And God has given you eyes of compassion to see those around you that are afflicted. And you're not meant to sit on your hands. You're not meant to watch unfeeling, unmoving like Jesus. You're meant to engage, to step into, to go down into the ditch with your brothers and sisters and your neighbors and friends and love them with the very love of Jesus. And still there are some of you today who came into this room dead. You came into this room dead. You've never trusted Christ. You're spiritually dead. You're dead in your sin. You're dead in your trespasses. You need resurrection life, and only Jesus can do that. And today is a day where God is inviting you to come to him in faith that you may be born again and may find resurrection life, that your eyes may flutter open and you may see the face of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful for this text. God, I'm so thankful for the privilege you give us of gathering week in and week out, of sitting under the beauty, the truth, the power of this word, God, as we get a gaze upon you, I am so thankful to know that, that God, you have a compassionate heart. We see it in your son, Jesus. And God, I'm mindful of those men and women who are in this place today. God, as we look upon this, this scene in the Gospels, this historical account of Jairus and his daughter and this woman with the issue of blood, God, would you allow us to see the truth of who you are and then see how it impacts, intersects, meets us where we are today. And God, I'm mindful of those in our midst who are desperate for the well-being of another, God. Would you give them the faith to, to bring that person before you today? God, would you work in and through their prayers in a powerful way? God, I'm mindful of those here today who are wretched and in the ditch of despair and suffering. God, would you meet them in the ditch and do whatever you have to do to bring confession and repentance and healing and wholeness? God, give us eyes like your son Jesus to see to see the suffering in our midst, to see those who are in the ditch, to see the desperation and the despair, God, that we may enter as ambassadors, as parables of Jesus, God, and love people with your very love. And God, today, I'm mindful of those men and women who may have walked in this room, having never trusted you, never been born again, never come to you in faith, God, dead in their sin and trespasses. God, would you open their eyes to the truth of the gospel today? This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a few weeks ago, Pastor Jeremy, he, he was preaching and he said that Heritage Christian Fellowship is not interested in collecting a bunch of professional hearers. We don't want to be a church of professional hearers. Our hope isn't to have one guy up here and a thousand people out there and have one directional communication where all you do is hear. We're a body of believers. We're the body of Christ. Heritage Christian Fellowship is a gospel-centered Body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus, who make disciples of Jesus. It's a it's a familial thing. It's a communal thing where we need each other. It's a, it's a relationship. We are an organism. We are the body of Christ. We're dependent on one another, interdependent on one another. It's not meant to be a one-way communication. Some days we gather, we often sit under the teaching and, and, and we end up going home. But today we wanted to create a little bit of space for you to engage in prayer, to engage with one another, to engage with God, to engage in the community. So we're doing something a little bit different today. In a minute, I'm going to ask some of our pastors and elders to stand up and kind of gather around the side of the room, maybe in the front, maybe in the back, available for prayer, that you might go to them in prayer. But we want to do just more than that. Here's what we want to do today. How might God be prompting you to pray today, over the next few moments? Perhaps God is prompting you to pray for another an unbelieving friend or family member, a prodigal, someone who's sick, a neighbor, a friend, a family member. Perhaps God is prompting you to come to him today as you recognize you are in the ditch of despair and he's, he's inviting you to come with him that you might experience him with you in the midst of that place. That you might experience his power as he wants to work miraculously in your life to pull you out of that habitual sin, to bring healing into your life, to give you the steadfastness you need to thrive even under affliction, whatever it may be. And perhaps... And I would even say most importantly today, perhaps God is calling you to new life. Maybe you've never had a moment in your life where you have come to Christ in faith and you've said, Jesus, I need to trust you. I need you. I'm dead. I've done the religion thing. I've tried to do it on my own, but I need you by the power of your spirit alive in me. I need to be born again. Maybe today is a day God is inviting you to step up in faith, to step out, to come forward and to ask him to come into your life. You recognize that you are, you're, you're sinful. You recognize that, that, that God had demonstrated his love for you, that even while you were a sinner, Christ died for you on the cross. You recognize that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If Jesus meets us in the ditch and has the power to do something about it, the power is in the cross. It is at the cross where, the, where God, in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the living God, bore our sin experience the wrath our sin deserves, overcame death and sin. The empty tomb testifies to the power of Christ that you may have forgiveness of sin that you may be born again. Paul puts it this way in Romans 10. He says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is for, it is with your heart, rather, that, that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And I'm reminded of what John writes in, in the Gospel of John. He says, all who receive Jesus, those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God born again. And so today, for the next few moments, we're going to sing a couple songs. I want to encourage you, I want to invite you into a time of personal worship, if that's what you're at, If just to stand up and sing songs to God between you and him. It's an entirely appropriate response today. Perhaps today is a time of private prayer. Maybe God wants you and him in a moment of intimacy right here for the next few moments for you to pour out your heart to God. Maybe you don't need to invite anybody else in that space. My hope today is that some of you who, who recognize today as a day of communal prayer. Maybe God's calling you to pray to the person you're sitting next to, whether you know him or you don't. For the next few minutes, I'm going to encourage you to step out in faith a little bit, to pray with your wife, to pray with your kids, to pray with your friend, to pray with your neighbor, to pray with your family, member. And if you feel like today would be a day where you'd love to speak to a pastor or an elder and have one of us pray with and for you, we'd be so honored to do that. So I going to ask our elders and our pastors who are here today to stand up, to go find a space along the road, along the wall. I want you to see them as they get up and as they walk around, see them, see where they are. They're here to meet with you and to pray with you. I'm going to come down, I'll be standing over here. And for the next few minutes, would we just worship together and pray together? Amen? You can stand up.